Hello and welcome to episode five of the Global Growth Leaders podcast. And on this special uh, show recording, um, I'm talking with uh, my colleague, uh, Henry Wang. Henry, how are you? It's good to see you again. Good to see you, Simon. It's a great pleasure to talk to you again. It is. And uh, we're talking about something that's very, very prescient right now, very, very present. And uh, it's in everybody's mind. And that is um, the Ukraine conflict. But specifically, we're going to focus on uh, its impact on global energy and climate change. And Henry, I have some questions for you, but I know you want to present first of all. So over to you. Thank you very much, Simon. And it's a great pleasure to talk to you again. And today, what I'd like to do is to uh, talk about the impact on the Ukraine uh, conflict and its impact specifically on global energy supply and also climate change, because I think uh, there are very big uh, implications on both. Let me share screen, let me share the uh, presentation uh, with you all. Perfect. I'll be basing the presentation on the uh, five books I've written and the 100 paper, together with my work with the uh, G20, B20 International Task Force. We're working very hard on preparing the policy recommendation for the G20 leaders uh, in the summit at the end of this year at Bali. And in this presentation, I'd like to cover several key topics. Uh, the supply of uh, energy, which include oil, gas, and coal. Then I'd like to talk a little bit about the emerging, very emerging concern of energy security and how it relates to climate change in clean energy transition, renewables, and hydrogen. And then I'd like to talk a little bit about the important actions on climate change mitigation, carbon neutrality, and also the opportunities like that will be created in green jobs, youth, education, advocacy, and international cooperation. So going straight into it, Russia is the world's third largest oil producer, just after United States and Saudi Arabia. And it is ahead of Iraq, China, UAE, Kuwait, other countries. And it's a major exporter of petroleum products from the many refineries that is inside Russia. So IEA has actually very interestingly said that Russia is actually the world largest combined exporter of oil, condensate, and petroleum products. And that's very important because this will have major impact on global oil, gas, petroleum product, and energy supply uh, picture. EU, I mean, we hear a lot about EU importing Russia oil, and it, they are a major importing of Russia oil and petroleum products. Of the 5 million barrels per day to Russia oil export, more than half, actually, are currently going to, to Europe. And, and Russia is Europe's biggest oil supplier, and it provides over a quarter of all the EU oil imports in 2020. 
And in money, in number term, this is equal. The, the oil export to EU comprise of about 2 million barrels per day of crude oil and about 1.2 million barrels of petroleum products. So altogether about three, three to three and a half million barrels of oil and petroleum products. And you must have all heard about the plans by EU to sanction and reduce Russian oil and petroleum products import. But this may take some time to find alternative sources and options, which I'll talk more in this uh, presentation. But in addition to exporting to, to the EU, to Europe, Russia is also a major oil exporter to leading Asia countries. Of the 5 million barrels of uh, Russian crude oil export, the other half actually is exported to Asia. And very interestingly, four Asia countries, which includes China, South Korea, Japan, and India, are the top four importers of Russian oil in Asia. Together, they imported about $76 billion worth of Russian oil in 2020. And very importantly, these are actually equivalent in monetary terms to the combined oil Russian oil export to the top four European importing countries, which are Netherlands, UK, Germany, and Italy. And uh, with the Ukraine crisis, uh, Asia countries have continued buying Russian oil and products with significant discount. And this is a very interesting point because the discount comes from the international euro versus WTI crude price differential. And let me show you this. You see, WTI is the, the, the US uh, oil or the international oil market. Euro is the Russian oil. Before the Ukraine conflicts, the differentials were very small. But since beginning of this year, February, the differential has been widening. So the buyers now of uh, Russian oil, the Euro crew, are actually enjoying a discount of about 20 to $30 per barrel of oil. And, and you know, this, this is uh, good for them. I mean, they, they are getting a good crew at, uh, at a significant discount to, to, the, to the market price. So some actually buyers of Russian uh, oil uh, has in fact been uh, buying more than they have been buying before the conflict. In addition to oil and gas exporter, Russia actually is the world's largest gas and LNG exporter. And its gas, I mean, goes to EU, but also it goes to China, Japan, and Asia, many countries. So most of its exports are going to EU and Asia. The, the Russian oil export, you have all heard about it on the news, are large and account for about 45% of the EU's gas import in 2021. And the largest uh, importer, Russia gas, in the EU are Germany and it Italy. Together, they account for almost half of the EU gas import from Russia. Germany was the main uh, EU gas importer 
taking about 19.4% of total exports in uh, 2020. And next is Italy, about 10%. But there are many other European countries that are importing uh, Russian gas. This include France, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Poland, Austria, Slovenia. And at the same time, Russia is also exporting gas and LNG to Asia, to China, Japan, and Korea. Most of these are our long-term gas supply contracts or LNG contracts, like the Sakhalin contract. And you hear a lot about the gas pipeline as well. A lot of the Russian gas to Europe is going through the Nord Stream 1 pipeline. And as part of the sanction, they are building the Nord Stream 2, but as part of sanction, that has been stopped. But there are also other gas pipelines, you can see the red lines. And these may, these are other pipelines or routes which allow gas from Russia or from Central Asia to reach Europe. And that might be an option for Europe to explore to find source gas from Kazakhstan or from other countries, which allows them to uh, replace some of the Russian gas. But very interestingly also, there are gas pipelines, which is in, in the south of Europe or in Italy, which may allow them to import gas from Mediterranean, Egypt, or from Africa. And these are options that uh, the European leaders and countries have to consider when they explore alternatives. But in addition to oil and gas, Russia is also a major co-exporter. It's actually the sixth largest co-producer in the world. And most of the Russian co-exports goes to Asia and to Europe. In 2020, about 54% of uh, Russia co-exports went to Asia countries and about 31% of Russia's co-export went to European countries. And Europe bought about, about near to $9 billion worth of coal from uh, Russia annually. Uh, and in 2021, Germany paid uh, Russia about 2.2 billion euro or 2.4 billion US dollar for its co-imports. But uh, looking ahead, they are planning to Europe, European country planning to phase down their, their Russia co-imports as part of their EU sanction and also as part of their commitment under the Paris Agreement to stop uh, using coal uh, so as to reduce environmental pollution. So one of the major international concerns which comes out of conflict is really the energy security, and you must have all heard about it in the news. And there are rising energy security concerns globally, especially in Europe. And you hear the European leaders all talking about it on the news. And to improve the EU energy security, European country leaders are actively considering other options to reduce uh, Russian oil and gas import to Europe. And, uh, and this is not an easy task because the, the import of uh, Russian gas is huge and it requires action both on the supply and demand side. 
And uh, one important tool is uh, liquefied natural gas, LNG. This will play a key role, but these LNG import will need dedicated LNG terminals uh, where LNG can be transported from producing countries into Europe and they can only be offloaded into these terminals. And these takes years to build and very high safety standards. US has already promised they will increase US LNG exports to Europe. And these can be transported by dedicated ships to existing LNG terminals in Europe. But the amount that the US LNG export to Europe will only be sufficient to replace only one third of the current Russian gas imports by EU countries. So the other two thirds have to be sourced elsewhere, either by additional action or by alternative gas imports. So they can either replace the, the, the two thirds of the other gas by, uh, in the short term, by gas from other countries. But in the longer term, Europe has already announced they will be accelerating the clean energy transition to reduce their reliance on Russia oil and gas imports. Uh, they will accelerate clean energy implementation in, the, in Europe. Uh, this is good news and it's a good time also because uh, uh, the International Renewable Energy Authorities has also announced that innovation has uh, helped and cost reduction has helped to reduce uh, the clean energy uh, costs, electricity generation by to the similar level to fossil fuel power generation. The, the, in the longer term, Europe will also accelerate hydrogen development, particularly in green hydrogen. This is something that they have already started to do, uh, and, uh, but these developments will take time. But the future is uh, very encouraging. This acceleration of clean energy transition will help to improve EU's energy self-sufficiency and energy security, which is good news, which is what the EU leader wants. But at the same time, the clean energy transition will help Europe to better meet their Paris Agreement and carbon neutrality commitments, which is very good news. And at the same time, the, the Asia importers of Russian oil and gas, which includes China, Japan, Korea, and other Asia countries, are also seeing these important lessons from Europe. And they are also having similar worries about energy security because they can see that they are exposed to the same geopolitical risk globally. So they are also accelerating their clean energy transition, renewable and hydrogen developments at the same time. So the net result, the combined net result is that all these energy concerns should help in the longer term to accelerate clean energy transition globally and help countries to better meet the Paris Agreement commitment and reduce emission. And this will help to improve uh, climate change and also help these countries globally to meet, uh, to reduce emission and to meet carbon neutrality. 
But in the short term, it is important to recognize there are certain many challenges and difficulties as countries start competing for, for, for gas supply and for LNG. Because in the short term, you can see if Europe starts to compete with Asia on LNG, then you can see that some of the Asian countries have to, in the short term, use coal to, to, for, for power generation. But hopefully these are only short term. And when the new equilibrium is reached, then uh, uh, you can see the world can really focus on the longer term acceleration of the clean energy transition, which will help to improve climate change mitigation globally. And this is the area where East and West leaders should work very closely together and talk a lot to exchange views so that they can uh, find win-win solution for both. Yeah, you don't want a situation where Europe is competing with Asia on LNG supply and then, you know, bidding up the LNG supply and, you know, forcing some countries to go to coal power generation in the short term. I think this, these, the, this East-West dialogue is very, very important, which is really, you know, why Simon and I are doing these podcasts, is that, you know, by talking more between East and West, this is very important. And, and through the G20 and B20, we've already been, been working and updating G20 leaders in both the East and West, that it is very important going ahead to reduce the CO2 uh, emissions globally. And, and we've also updated the G20 leaders, what are the major emission areas? And they are in fossil fuel power generation, in industrial areas, iron, steel, chemicals. Transportation is huge amount of, uh, of uh, emissions as well. So by driving, Accelerating clean energy transition, hopefully, these will help to reduce uh, global warming and help the world to, to meet the, the lower uh, Paris uh, temperature goals or the Paris ambition goals. And, and we have also updated the G20 leader that this is really important for the world to do because if the world continues on its current pathway, of CO2 emission and fossil fuel. This could lead to four degrees temperature rise by the end of the century. And this could lead to the destruction of 30% of the world GDP with the world experiencing some 10 months of droughts and low-lying countries like Holland and New York being flooded and also creating severe food crises. And that's why in COP26, you know, the world leaders are very supportive of uh, and reiterated their commitments to the Paris Agreement goals of, and also to further pursue effort to limit it to 1.5 degrees C and to achieve carbon neutrality by 2050 or 2060. These are important goals that the world have to meet together, particularly with uh, cooperation with leaders from the East and the West. And actually, many countries have already 
uh, rolled out new uh, clean energy transition policies and encouraging the growth of uh, renewables. And in the last 10 years, over $1 trillion has been in, uh, invested in renewables, as you can see. And looking ahead, we expect that uh, $200 billion of the investment will go into renewable and clean energy. And, and this is huge. And, and this has been creating really positive uh, new employments around the world of over 10 million new jobs in the low carbon and renewable green sector. And, and this is all over the world, in China, Brazil, United States, India, Japan, Europe, Germany, other countries. So this is really having a positive impact on economic growth globally. And uh, in, the, we've, in the G20 studies, we've also uh, updated the global leaders that Actually, if the world worked together between the East and West leaders, the G20 leaders, to work together to implement all the necessary climate uh, actions, this could create 26 trillion of economic, green economic growth. And this could create 65 million new green jobs globally. And this is really important for global recovery and build back better after COVID. And very important, this is a huge area, climate change on, on youth and education. And uh, just to share with you, I think we've also uh, in Rotary recently uh, promoted a international youth climate summit last year. And uh, over 300, we were really surprised, 300 Rotary actors and youth around the world joined and we had really excellent discussions on climate change, climate mitigation, and they have really wonderful ideas in environmental projects like growing bamboo and food recycling. Now, this is, this is fantastic, wonderful. Another very important area where East and West can work together is on all the, you know, 200 countries agree to, to, to develop new net zero plans after COP26 in Glasgow, including, and one good example, Hong Kong. Hong Kong is, uh, is now rolled out, uh, rolling out its climate action plan to get carbon neutrality by 2050. And, but the detailed plans have to be developed. And this is where yeast and West experts can really give uh, inputs, share their export, inputs, advice, and sharing good ideas to global leaders in the, both the East and West and help countries to develop the new plans, particularly the net zero, electricity generation, energy saving, green buildings, green transport, waste reduction. We can all share these achievements globally. So in summary, I think the Ukraine crisis have huge impact in both oil, petroleum products, gas, LNG, and coal. I think because Russia is the world's biggest combined exporter of oil and petroleum products, as well as gas and LNG. And a lot of countries are very worried about the energy security, particularly in Europe. So they've already uh, announced, the leaders have announced that they will uh, explore other alternatives to 
uh, improve their energy security and to reduce Russian oil and gas imports. These include trying to find alternative uh, other form of gas and oil imports from other countries. But at the same time, many country leaders, particularly uh, EU country leaders, have said that they will accelerate clean energy transition, particularly in renewable and hydrogen. And this will be having positive impacts on these countries by improving their energy security. But at the same time, for the world and for these countries, this will help to improve climate change mitigation and to help to achieve their commitments to the carbon, the, the Paris Agreement, and to achieve the carbon neutrality goals. And uh, you know, with our work in G20, B20, we've highlighted that these will, could lead to huge green growth globally, can create 65 million new green jobs globally. At the same time, this will be have created a lot of opportunities for youth and also green, green education. And this is a great area where East and West experts and leaders can share advice and share experience to promote international cooperation and build up really good global network uh, around the world in tackling the climate change and global warming, which are clearly one of, you know, everybody agrees during in COP26, these are the highest risk that is facing the, the world at this moment in time. So thank you very much and happy to discuss uh, uh, questions. Thank you. Wow, wow Henry, that was uh, extremely detailed and, and I learned an awful lot there as well. And just a few questions. What would you say would be the key implications on the global supplies of oil, gas and coal coming out of the Ukraine uh, conflict? The key implications? Yeah, the key implication is the world now realize how, how important uh, were the uh, Russian oil and gas uh, exports, how the world was reliant on that. I think, you know, the IEA have uh, said, the International Energy Authority have said that Russia actually is the world's largest uh, combined exporter of oil, uh, condensate and petroleum products. And these are mainly going to Europe and to Asia. And is also the largest supplier of uh, gas and LNG. And again, these are going to Europe and to Asia countries. So these countries are now very, very uh, realized that the, the dependency that they have and they are exploring ways of trying to reduce this. Yeah, and so what would you say would be the key energy security concerns coming out of all this? Yeah, the key energy security concern is that they, these countries, particularly in Europe, recognize the dependency that they have on Russia, oil and gas. And the uh, European leaders uh, has already publicly announced that they want to uh, reduce the Russia oil and gas imports so as to improve the energy security and on their reliance. And these will involve them exploring uh, urgent actions on both the supply and demand side. Uh, this will, for example, this would, uh, they would uh, have to look at alternative supply of oil and gas from, from other countries. Uh, they, one good uh, 
important uh, too is that uh, liquefy LNG and US has already said that they will uh, promise Europe to export more uh, liquefy LNG to Europe, but these will not be sufficient. So Europe will still need to uh, look at alternative gas supply and oil supply in the short term. But in the longer term, they would need to accelerate their clean energy transition. Yeah. And, and, and so how would you say that the, the, these concerns will help to accelerate the clean energy transition? Yeah. Well, the European leaders, I think uh, I listened to the speeches by the European leaders, and I think they recognized it. They recognize that the urgent action they need to do in the short term will be uh, supply and explore alternative suppliers of oil and gas to them. And, uh, but in the longer term, these are only short-term uh, measures. Uh, in the longer term, they would, they've announced that they want to accelerate uh, the clean energy transition and they like to promote uh, renewable and clean renewable energy implementation in the countries. They've actually been, uh, to, be, to be fair to the European countries, they've already been uh, doing a lot in this, uh, in this area. And uh, they are already uh, leaders in, in, in many of these areas. And, uh, uh, but this crisis have made them realize uh, their energy security concerns and, to, 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 and they realize that uh, to be how valuable, how important the geopolitical uh, importance of achieving energy self-sufficiency as soon as possible is now more important than ever. So this is now rising up the political agenda. Whereas in the past, they would say, we have time, we will want to work on this because, you know, this will take time. But now they are now accelerating this. And this is good time because the, 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 the work that has been done, the innovation in the last 10 years in, in renewable energy has now made renewable energy uh, very competitive, cost competitive to fossil fuel in terms of uh, electricity generation and also in terms of transportation, electricity cars are really ticking off, you know. So this is, this is great timing. It is. And what about renewables and hydrogen developments? Will these concerns help promote these? Yeah, well, really, you know, they, in the shorter term, the, uh, the European leaders and the planners uh, can obviously uh, apply proven technology, like in solar, wind. These are already proven technology. And uh, offshore wind, for example, is now very cost competitive. And onshore wind and solar farms, you know, are very, very cost competitive and technology proven to, uh, to fossil fuel generation. So they can implement this. And of course, different countries have uh, different uh, drivers and different priorities, but uh, they can uh, implement this. And there are ambitious plans like, you know, building an offshore island for, for, for wind generation to, and then to export the electricity by undersea cable to European countries. I think these are all technically proven and can, can work. Now, looking in the longer term, the European leaders has also announced that 
uh, and, and, and not only European leaders, but also Asian leaders as well, has also announced that hydrogen is a really important uh, strategic greenfield uh, in the longer term future. And uh, many companies are already working on this, but this needs more, te more technological innovations, particularly the cost of uh, hydrogen production is high. But in terms of uh, uh, applications, uh, there's already hydrogen buses and hydrogen cars that are running. And you, you've all seen, I think, uh, on the news during the Japan Olympics and the Beijing Winter Olympics, hydrogen buses were, were used during, in, the, in these Olympics. So, you know, they are being already applied, but the problem is the hydrogen production costs are high. But uh, when you get uh, urgencies like this, this is great. This international crisis has actually given the impetus uh, to, to encourage more funding to energy, uh, to, you know, to, to, to researchers working in this area to accelerate uh, innovations in green uh, hydrogen production. I mean, a very good case is really, you know, in renewable production. Ten years ago, everybody was saying, you know, when we talk about renewable, when I first start discussing the renewable, everybody was saying it's so expensive. But 10 years later, now it's cost competitive to fossil fuel. So with hydrogen, with all the best brains working on this, and now particularly with this uh, Ukraine crisis, really raising energy security tied up in the political leaders' uh, minds. And there's no argument now. You know, everybody recognized the geopolitical importance of being of energy security and being uh, self-sufficient in energy. So hydrogen is very attractive because once you develop uh, a way to generate hydrogen uh, uh, cheaply, then the, the supply of raw material is limitless. There's water and electrolysis of water. Yeah, absolutely. And then... The, the penultimate question is, how will these security concerns help climate change mitigation and achieving more carbon neutrality neutrality goals? Yeah, and that's a very, very good question, Simon. And I think, you know, the, the in COP26, I think all the, we've been discussing this in the G20 team with the global leaders, and now I think all the global leaders understands the importance of uh, climate change and the damage that it can potentially do to the global GDP. I, I think uh, we've uh, done all the maths and we've told the global leaders uh, that uh, if, uh, the, if they do nothing and the world uh, temperature rise to four degrees, then you could destroy 30% of the global GDP. And this will be huge damage because this will be many times worse than COVID at this moment in time. Yeah, so the global leaders all agree that they should work hard to achieve the uh, Paris Agreement goals uh, of, uh, and the ambition of 1.5 degrees. And this will mean that countries will have to uh, reduce, accelerate the clean energy transition and to reduce uh, uh, emissions. And the, the crisis at this moment in time of, actually have given the global leaders and the country leaders 
uh, more impetus to accelerate this. Many countries, to be fair, has already rolled out uh, uh, many clean energy transition policies and regulation, and many countries are already doing this. But now every country can see what is happening and they can see that they would need to do that. They cannot be left behind anymore. They cannot take more time and let's do that in 10 years time or let's do that in 15 years time because that will be too late. You know, what is happening now can happen to you. They all realize that and they can see that playing out. Whereas in the past, this was something hypothetical uh, that could happen, a, a possible scenario. But now seeing is believing. They all believe now that this could happen to them and they don't want that to happen to them because they will see that uh, their country will be very dissatisfied with them and their positions will be very much as leaders will not be secure if uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, the country is not uh, secure or enjoying uh, good energy security. So I think that in the in the short term, it is very important for East and West leaders to work together to come to some win-win solutions and arrangement about short-term energy supply, LNG, gas, because everybody will be looking for alternative LNG, gas supply and oil supply. So there shouldn't be a fight, a bomb fight around the table, but there should be win-win solutions. East and West, Western countries shouldn't be fighting on the scarce LNG supply and gas supply in the short term, but they should talk and come to some agreement. And in the longer term, they should work together and to promote clean energy transition, renewable and hydrogen development so that these can be, the world can, uh, accelerate uh, and use as much clean energy as possible and to reduce the fossil fuel consumption. And this will be good for the world because this will help to accelerate uh, uh, climate change mitigation and, and help the world to meet its uh, Paris Agreement goals and to achieve carbon neutrality and to reduce emission, which is good for all of us and for our grandchildren. Absolutely. And, and I think you've covered cooperation between the West and the East and this has been a great conversation, Henry, and very, very powerful. And uh, how can people find out more about you and the work you do if they're interested? What's the best way for them to connect with you? Yeah, they can connect with me on the, all the social medias. I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, and uh, WeChat. And of course, uh, I'll, I've really enjoyed doing our East West Leader podcast. And uh, you can see that on the on YouTube. Absolutely. And I hope you've enjoyed it as much as Simon and I have enjoyed it. Absolutely. So thanks so much, Henry. That was really, a, you know, a whistle-stop tour. It's the best summary that I've heard of the impact of the Ukraine conflict on global energy supplies, climate change, etc. So thanks so much. And uh, we'll see you see each other again for episode six later this year. Thank you, Henry. Thank you, Simon. I've Thank really you. enjoyed talking to you again. Me too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.